what does it look like when someone is close to God? What is, what's someone's life look like if they are especially blessed by God? What's it look like if someone is, just stays within the will of God? What does their life look like when those things are true about a person? I think I know how most people would answer that. Most people who believe in God would say that if someone is, if someone's close to God, if someone's in the will of God, if someone's blessed by God, then their lives tend to have more of the things that we would recognize as being blessing. They would be, in general, healthier, happier, more successful, have more money. In fact, um, more and more people who call themselves Christians believe what I just said is true. More and more American churches are growing, that uh, giant air quote churches, um, that supposedly teach, that teach people how to stay close to God so that when you do, you'll be blessed with better health, more stuff, more success. The problem I have with Christians believing that is the Bible. Because the Bible just doesn't, it just doesn't teach that. In fact, the, the, people in the, the people in the Scriptures, especially throughout the New Testament, that seem to be closest to the Lord, seem to have it the worst. We just learned, we would all agree with this, I think. If you believe in life after death, if you believe in eternal life, wouldn't you agree that eternal life is the greatest blessing God could give anyone wouldn't that be true? Well, just before, just prior to what we're going to read together today, it was two weeks ago for us sermon-wise, Jesus just taught us that it's easier for a rich man, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And, and he backed that up by saying, that's possible with God. God can do the impossible. But very clearly, Jesus was teaching sometimes what we think down here on earth, it would be our biggest blessing, can actually be what keeps us from our biggest blessing. It's a barrier between us and God. What we ask for and beg for and want can sometimes be our, not our biggest blessing, but our biggest trial. It could lead to our undoing. It even keeps people from getting to know the Lord and gaining eternal, eternal life. There's just no correlation between closeness to God and the way things are going in our lives on earth. There's just no correlation. You know how I know? Because in Psalm 34, God said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
And I talk about from up here stuff like this a lot. If you notice then, you know why? Because Jesus taught, taught this stuff a lot. You know why? Because his disciples missed it a lot. Never more clearly illustrated than today. Today, we're going to see the disciples like at their most tone deaf. Here's what's going to happen today. Cliff Notes version. Jesus is going to predict for the third time his death, his mistreatment, his torture, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And then the disciples immediately after that, two of them are going to come with their mama and ask to be bestowed, to have bestowed upon them positions of greatness. Jesus will let them know, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. And he's going to teach about real greatness. This is his summary teaching on real greatness. Just to be clear, by calling Jesus the goat, that's a good thing, right? It used to be if somebody was a goat, that was a bad thing. It means you really messed up bad. That's the greatest of all time, right? Jesus is going to define, he is the greatest of all time, and he's going to hash out for us and define what greatness really is. Let's read this passage together. We're in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 17. Actually, Seth, can you back that up one click for me? There we go. Matthew 20, verse 17 through 28. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And Jesus said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. That's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten, the other disciples, became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their rulership over the people they rule. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's our passage. And, and, and where we begin, we see Jesus is, is on the way up to Jerusalem, which in the Bible is, never, is not north. It's up in elevation. And they're, they're on the way, and he pulls them aside. This is the third and final time in the book of Matthew Jesus predicts. This is what we call his passion, the, uh, his arrest his, uh, his, his torture, his execution. Every time Jesus does this, he adds a little more detail. 
the new details this time. This is the first time that he, he mentions the, the cross, the actual cross that he'll be crucified. And he always adds this. He not only predicted his death, he always predicted his resurrection as well. Now the disciples never believe him. <laughs> they just never get it. They I think they think that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, like in a parable like he sometimes did, or, or using hyperbole, exaggeration to prove a point. We can tell they never believe this would actually happen by the way they believe, when it, or by the way they behave, when it actually happens. They're shocked. I think they think that he is... Uh, trying to get them to understand, you know, we're on the way to Jerusalem, we're almost there, and there's going to be some kind of struggle before the big payoff. But he's speaking absolutely, literally, even though they don't get it. So they never believe that will happen, and we can tell, <laughs> can tell that by... There's a little Greek word that starts here. It just becomes uh, the word then in our English Bibles. Tate is the... Is the, is the Greek word. And that lets us know basically right away after Jesus predicts that he's going to be scourged and crucified, the two disciples and their mama walk up and kind of go, hey, enough about your pending doom already. Can we talk about how awesome you might make these sons of mine here? It's very, it's very inappropriate. But uh, the these two brothers, Matthew doesn't tell us that their names are James and John, but we know the sons of Zebedee are James and John, two fishermen brothers, two of Jesus' closest disciples. And, and they put their mom up to asking Jesus for a favor. Because this is just a universal truth of human behavior. It is way harder to tell your friend's mom no than it is to tell your friend no, Right? And so they get mama to go ask Jesus for a favor. And he says, all right, what do you want? And she replied, permit these two sons of mine to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. When you get, when this all goes down, we're going to get to Jerusalem. We know you're the king. And being close to the king always brings certain benefits. It brings, you know, that sort of position brings prestige and power and, you know, money and fame and all these things. So, can my two boys be your number one and your number two? That's what right and left mean. Well, Jesus responds next to that inappropriate request. And verse 22 is the reason why I say that James and John have put their mom up to this. Um, it's hard to tell this in English a little bit, but I, I put the blame for the favor at the feet of the boys, not their mama. Here's why. In the Greek, you can tell that all the yous in Jesus' response here are plural. In other words, mama has asked the question, but Jesus doesn't respond to mama. He responds to the boys. He knows where this has come from. Jesus says, Y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Are y'all able to drink the cup 
I'm about to drink. And definitely that's about the boys. Are you guys able to suffer like I'm suffering? So, so this, is real. this is why also when Mark tells this story, Mark leaves mama out altogether. And this is one thing people who don't like the Bible or like to find uh, uh, nits to pick or whatever. So you can't trust the Bible. Mark says that uh, mom wasn't even there. And Matthew says mom asked the question. Mark just says James and John asked the question. Well, both those things can't be true. See, you can't trust the Bible. Well, that's not honest. We do this all the time. Mark wants to make sure we, that his audience knows where the question really came from, so he just leaves mom out of it. And we do the same thing all the time. You might read that the president has asked Congress for such and such. And that's absolutely true. And nobody says, aha, nuh-uh. He told somebody else to go ask Congress. He didn't really ask. Well, who's the ask from? Right, or your favorite athlete. You might hear of a, of a professional athlete uh, that, that's, you're, you know, he is asking for X number of million dollars from, from the team. And that's true, even though he won't be the one to actually go ask. His agent will do the asking. Both of the, So you could say uh, his agent went and asked the team, or you could say he asked the team, and you could be right and you can be honest both ways. That makes sense. That's what happens here. This comes from the boys. And Jesus' response, he starts this way. You guys don't even know what you're asking. You guys don't know what you're, you don't even understand what you're asking, and they don't. There are a lot of things James and John don't understand about Jesus and his kingdom. First, they don't understand the timing of the kingdom. They say, hey, we want you, to, we want you to, to give us this because we're almost to Jerusalem. They think Jesus is going to be king like in a week. They don't understand there's at least 2,000 years between when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and when he reigns on earth as king. We're still waiting. They don't understand that, uh, they don't understand what being close to Jesus will mean for people in their lifetime and for at least the next 2,000 years. They think being close to Jesus will bring fame and power and money and all that stuff. When in reality, being close to Jesus will come with sort of the opposite of those things. It will come with persecution, hatred, and pain and legal troubles. And finally, they... They don't understand, when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, they don't understand how closeness to Jesus happens. They think it's just bestowed on somebody. They treat being close to Jesus like the front seat, right? You call it, right? Shotgun, we're almost to Jerusalem, so we better hurry up and call the best seats before we get there. That's not how closeness to Jesus happens. It's not a placemat. It's not an assigned seat. Closeness to Jesus comes just in a relationship. And like any good, close relationship, you can't just, it, it comes for, let's see, maybe you've heard this before, for, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, right? in sickness or in health. They just want the good benefits. 
And Jesus says, no, no, no. This closeness to me is going to come with good and with, and with bad. It's not the front seat. You can't just call it. So they don't understand, and so Jesus asks them in the second part of verse 22. Are you guys able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Drinking a cup is a, is a common Old Testament figure of speech for suffering. If you read somebody in the, in the Old Testament drinking a cup, they're probably not literally drinking. Probably things aren't going well. So Jesus basically asks here, you want closeness to me and that's good. But are you really ready and willing to experience what will come with closeness to me? Rejection, loneliness, persecution. You know, it's, it's easy for us to forget this because of where we're fortunate enough to live. For us, closeness to Jesus does often come at a price. But usually for us, it's like somebody might make fun of us. We might get left out. We might not get to run with the cool kids or get invited to the right parties. For the first generation of Christians and for 2,000 years, Christians all over the world, closeness to Jesus often came, comes at a terrible, terrible price. Sometimes we may pay a price here for closeness to Jesus. But it's not like the price our brothers and sisters in North Korea might be paying. That's what Jesus was asking these guys. Are you willing, are you willing to pay the price that closest to me might cost you? And they answer, they answer, we are able. Oh yeah, oh absolutely, bring it on. The, the Net Bible, which is the, the NET, which is what's on the screen here, at this point they give the following footnote. I just wanted you to be able to read it with me because I thought it was so good. They say, we are able, and the editors of the New English Translation say, no more naive words have ever been spoken as those found here coming from James and John. We are able. They said it with such confidence and ease, yet they had little clue as to what they were affirming. In the next sentence, Jesus confirms that they will indeed suffer for, for his name. You know, they think the suffering's a metaphor, right? They think, oh, there's going to be some little struggle before Jesus gets to be king. I can put up with a week's worth of heartache to be close to Jesus in his kingdom. Well, Jesus lets them know next. In verse 23, he tells them, you will drink my cup. You will suffer. And boy, would they. If we would turn in the right to our Bibles, just a really a short period of time between where we're at in Matthew, we would read this in, in, in Acts chapter 12, the first two verses. About that time, King Herod laid hands on some from the church to harm them. He had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. Not James, Jesus' half-brother that wrote the book of James. This guy in our story today became the first one of the apostles to be executed. Why? Because he was close to Jesus. That's what closeness to, to Jesus brought John. Excuse me, James, his execution. His brother John, though we don't know that he was ever executed, he may have been. But we do know from 
the introduction he wrote to the book of Revelation, the Apostle John was exiled, which just means um, the Romans rounded him up and shipped him off of the mainland. Right? He uh, lived the rest of his life out on an island off the coast of what we call Turkey, uh, just like, in a, like being on Alcatraz. No way, no way to get off. So they would, they would suffer for Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus keeps going. He says, you will drink my cup, you will suffer for me. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Rather, it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I want you to catch what just happened. What they've asked, and they use their mama as the proxy. Don't, but don't you just love mamas, by the way? I mean, mamas are the best. They'll do, they just want what's best for their boys, right? Um, they use their mama. Hey, here's what they want. They want to be bestowed the benefits of closeness to Jesus that will happen in the kingdom, right? They want glory and power and all that wonderful stuff. And Jesus, but they don't want to suffer, and Jesus tells them you're going to get absolutely the opposite of what you asked for. They want the position without the suffering. And Jesus says, you're going to get the suffering and you ain't getting the position. He says, you will drink my cup. You're going to suffer. But the position you asked for, not so much. You're not getting that. It's not mine to give. And by the way, in one sense, James and John won't get that position on the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom because no one will, in one sense. What they're asking, they want to be elevated to the positions of like vice Jesus, right? What they really ask is, you know, Lord, when, when you get to be king, I mean, we don't want to be above you. I mean, you're Jesus and everything. You're the Lord. We just want to be above everyone else. That's all we're asking. We want, to be, we want it to be Jesus, James and John, and then everybody else down here. They want to be like colleagues with Jesus, vice Jesus, second in command to Jesus. You know what the Bible teaches about ideas like that? Jesus so far outpaces everything that has ever been created. There's going to be nobody that's going to be seen as like first and second chair, or second and third chair to Jesus. The, the difference between Jesus is the greatest of all time, and whoever is second, the gap between Jesus and whoever is second is infinite. He's God. Everyone else is a sinful, saved creature. This is why in last week's passage, Jesus taught, at the end of the day, everybody's going to receive the same reward. We're all going to be not deserving to be there. They said, we want to be, we want to be above everyone else. And Jesus, it's, kind of, it's like he says, don't you understand what I just taught you? Now there's one other way, there's one other way to take this, what he says. He says, to, to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So there are two people that the position at Jesus' right and left has been prepared specifically for them. And I think James and John thought, well, man, doggone dog, it. Somebody must have called it before we did. 
We wanted those spots, and Jesus just said, somebody else, when we get to Jerusalem, is going to be on my right and my left, and it's not going to be you. And they go, God darn it. And Matthew's going to tell us who that is. In chapter 27, we're going to read this. And at the time, two criminals, at that time, two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And that right there is a vivid reminder of what closeness to Jesus often will look like over the last 2,000 years on this broken, evil planet. Closeness to Jesus will often look and feel more like a cross than a crown. It's why those religious systems that we are shot through with in America right now that teach you supposedly how to live your best life now and use God to get what you want make me sick. Now the other 10 disciples, they get wind that uh, James and John just called the front seat. And just like when your kids call shotgun, shotgun, uh uh-uh, you got it last time, right? The fight begins. And they, they, the ten hear it, they are moved with indignation. They just get really mad that James and John have asked for this. It's not because they're more spiritually mature and understand what's going on. They want what the two brothers have asked for. By the way, I think we can pause right here and just give thanks be to God that God ordained that not everyone had their mamas there that day too, or this fight could have been a lot worse. Can you imagine? You asked for your boys to be elevated above, above my Nathaniel, right? Whew, that's scary to think about. See, the Battle of Armageddon, we're still waiting on it. It would have happened right there that day, I think. So the other 10 are, they're mad. Jesus knows the whole lot doesn't understand any better than James and John did. And so Jesus is going to summarize. This is, in many ways, a summary of of all he has been teaching about greatness in the kingdom to this point. 25 through 27, I read this way. He says to all the disciples, y'all know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over. They take their position as rulers. They use it to their advantage. They use it to keep everybody else down, to raise themselves up, to make themselves important and powerful. And those in high positions, they use their authority over the ones they are over. And then Jesus says this, it must not be this way among you. This is Jesus' way of saying, stop it. Instead, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. From those verses, just look at verses 26 and 27. Is it okay to want to be great? Is it okay? Yes. Jesus says, you want to be great. You want to do this well. Good. Just understand what greatness looks like. The rest of the world, greatness is measured by how many people you are above. How many people I have more than. 
how many people I can order what to do, how many people I, how many people are under me, all of that stuff. Jesus says, in the kingdom, and for you guys, for us in the church, greatness is measured not by how many people I am over, but how many people I'll put myself under, how many people I will serve. So you want to be great? How many people do you serve? It's a vivid reminder that leaders are to be servants. And there are no tasks that are to be beneath us, below us. Sometimes I think we get frustrated. I know we all want to do things for the Lord, but we get frustrated because we want to do things for the Lord, but we kind of want to do things that other people think are pretty cool. Like we want to do something that lots of people think is, wow, that's really something. Slave. Serve. There's no task that's supposed to be beneath us. I'm convinced Jesus taught me this on my first day as a pastor. A vivid illustration. June 1st, 2011. It was my first day ever as a pastor. And my office was over here, and I was just bringing boxes of stuff into my office. And, you know, I had probably had 27 cups of coffee or something like that that day, so I had to use the restroom. So I walk around. Our only restroom was over there. And I'm going to try to be discreet here, but listen, somebody had defiled the place and left. Okay? The condition of the stool in the men's room was unspeakable. Okay? Uh, somebody, it was a hit and run crime. And I was the only one here, and things were not flowing properly. So I nosed around till I found the, the, the plunger. And literally, this is the first thing I ever did as pastor, the respected position of pastor. Right? And I smiled as I was doing it. Thank you, Lord. Because whoever wants to be great in your eyes must be a servant. And there is nothing beneath me. You know why that's true? That that's what real greatness looks like. Because as Christians, we're supposed to be, you know, following Christ. <laughs> the last thing Jesus says here is the reason why this is greatness. Who's the greatest of all time? Say his name, ready? Who's the greatest of all time? Jesus. That's what he says. I want you to be great like I have been great, like I am great on this earth. And we're not ever going to be God like he is God. So we're not going to have his greatness in the next world. But he says, just be like me, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lays out real greatness and by his own scale, He's the greatest. Because the whole reason he came was to do the greatest act of service and the most demeaning, belittling act of service for the most people that anyone ever pulled off in all of the history of the universe. He did not deserve to go through what he went through. 
He did it. Why? He gave his life as a ransom for many. I want to tell you about this little word right here. As a ransom for many. The Greek word is lutron. Lutron is the price that was required to buy a slave's freedom. Jesus said that he came to give his life to buy the freedom for slaves. Guess who that is? That's you and me. He came to give his life because that's the required price to free you and to free me from slavery to our sin, from our eternal death, from hell. That's why he's the greatest. Because he came to, to serve, to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. And listen, but that's, by the way, that's what redemption is. There's a churchy word for you, to redeem. You ever, you ever get a coupon and it has the word redeem on it? This, you can redeem this for one whatever. Redeem just means to pay the price for something so you can take it out of the store. Jesus, when he redeemed us, he paid the price to remove us from our bondage to sin and death. And then he sets us free. He didn't, he didn't set us free. He did set us free, but he didn't set us free just so we could go back to work trying to see how great we can make ourselves from an earthly perspective. He set us free to serve, to be like him. At the beginning of our time this morning, I asked these questions. What does it look like in someone's life when they're close to God? What does it look like in someone's life when they're blessed by God? What does it look like in someone's life when they're in the will of God? You see how Jesus answers that today. The closer we are to him, the more of his people we serve. The closer we are to him, the less we keep score by means of human greatness. He is the greatest of all time. And he set us free to be great like he is great. Amen? We're going to pray in just a minute. The musicians are going to come up and we're going to transition to the time at the table. It is, I could not have picked, and I didn't, but I could not have picked a better passage for Communion Sunday. Because here's what we just read. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So we're going to spend about 10 or 15 minutes in communion here thinking about this. The ransom. The Lutron. The price that was required to buy your freedom and my freedom was no small thing. He, he, gave, he gave his life. The God of the universe who had created everyone who has ever been created came to earth and he kept telling his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. It's all going to go down. They're going to come get me. And men he had created men who served in the temple that was supposed to be for him, to him, spat in his face, slapped him, turned him over to godless men to scourge and beat and 
humiliate and execute Jesus and he made very clear hey if I wanted to I'm not powerless before these I could call down legions of angels to zap all these guys the word of his mouth he could melt them but he came to serve you and me by giving his life as the required price to free you and me from the destiny we deserve and instead give him give us the reward only he earned so the guys come forward let's pray over the bread dear heavenly father we we thank you so much for the ransom that you sent your son pay the required price for our freedom. Thank you for his example of greatness, serving the most people in the most humbling and painful way. Lord, we can't live up to your standards of righteousness, and Lord Jesus, we can't live up to your standard of service either, because you have served us in a way know what we could never do. So we just want to take some time, Lord, uh, before we maybe are thinking about how we can serve others and how we can get busy being servants and you're kind of great. We just want to take some time remembering your greatness, the great, great love with which you loved us, that you gave your life as a ransom for many. Bless our time as we hold the symbol the body you gave up as part of our ransom in Jesus' name. Amen.